Hey everybody, this is Ryan welcoming you to the first ever Tome to the Weather Machine podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to do this. This is something that I've wanted to do for a while. Um, it's an opportunity for me to reach out and to talk to um, individuals who I just think are really interesting, uh, who are involved in experimental music, um, either as musicians or uh, people who run labels um, or who run distros um, or who run spaces, um, who book shows, just people who are really, really out there and doing it uh, in terms of experimental music. Um, the, the, this first, uh, this first uh, episode of this podcast, I talked to Alex Cobb, who is uh, a musician uh, under his name, Alex Cobb, um, and who runs a, uh, a really successful um, label called Students of Decay. Um, this year they're celebrating their 10th um, anniversary. Um, Alex is putting out a new uh, record in April called Chantelpleur. Probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, but his last record, uh, Mary Golden Cable, came out last year. It's one of my favorites. Um, absolutely beautiful um, ambient drone guitar, um, process guitar. Uh, just really, really beautiful and floating, utilizing a lot of overtones and just really, really just beautiful, beautiful structural stuff. So I, I talked to Alex and we uh, we, we chat about um, uh, kind of where he uh, where he came from, you know, personally and musically. A little bit about the new record, a little bit about um, the history of Students of Decay. Um, if if you if you follow if you follow Students of Decay or you, you follow experimental music, um, this would, I think would be pretty interesting to kind of see. Um, into the mind of uh, somebody who uh, who's run a, a an experimental music label for uh, for ten years and, and had some had some success for it. Um, I first met Alex. Um, well, I, I guess I, I became aware of Alex and Students of Decay a couple years ago when um, the Tome uh, got on his mailing list and he would um, he would email us promos. I guess it really wasn't until. Um, uh, 2013, when he put out the Se the Secret Pyramid album, Movements of Night, um, that I really, really started following Students of Decay and and listening to and, and writing up pretty much every release since then. Um, and so yeah, so Alex and I would e email back and forth. Um, he just seemed like a pretty nice, personable guy. Um, and I, I moved here to Cincinnati where I'm doing this podcast, um, and I, I remember talking to a friend of mine um, just about music that we've been listening to, um, and I, I'm like, yeah, um, I've been listening to this guy, Alex Cobb, um, his new album, uh, Mary Golden Cable, and he's like, you know that Alex is like a longtime Cincinnati guy, right? I'm like, no, I had no idea. He's like, yeah, like, and, you know, just started telling me all these stories about um, Alex and this uh, radio show that they did, and um, his uh, involvement with Art Damage, um, which we talk a little bit about, which is sort of a, a legendary um, collective of experimental and noise musicians um, in Cincinnati. So, yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good interview. Um, um, this is my first podcast. Uh, pardon, there's some noise in the, in there a little bit. My dog was um, chewing a bone relatively close to the microphone. I had to take care of that situation. Um, but yeah, so this is my, this is my first podcast. Uh, I, I hope you guys like it. Um, or I, I don't know who you guys are. Um, people who are listening, uh, male or female, um, it doesn't matter. <laughs>
um, I, I yeah, this is more than anything. Um, I find this interesting. I, I like having these conversations, and my interest in this. Um, I'm really interested to see where um, music and, uh, and personal development um, kind of uh, intersect. Um, I, it, you guys don't know, need to know too much about me, but um, I'm uh, my last um, semester of graduate school um, in social work, um, and so part of my part of my studies and, and part of my uh, my work in the kind of the mental health field, um, I'm, I work primarily with adolescents with mental and uh, mental health and behavioral issues. Um, and one thing that I, I've I found really helpful is to uh, kind of com strike a common ground with with music, um, because so much of our personal development is tied in. Um, with uh, with creating an identity, and I I can't think of one of the uh, a, a more potent way to sort of differentiate oneself um, or, or to create an identity than through um, the type of music you listen to. Um, so yeah, that that's that's really my my interest in this whole thing is is finding out about people because I, I like talking to people and I like hearing about them. But more than anything, where um, where music intersects with that and where, especially where experimental music um, plays a role in that. Experimental music, um, you know, is a really, really broad um, term, um, one that I uh, take the take the liberty to define really however I want to. Um, but it's, it's interesting because, I don't know, I, I, I kind of, um, I kind of compare experimental music in a way to, um, to maybe somebody who's religious or, or follows a spiritual practice. Um, on the outside, um, somebody kind of looking in, um, they, they may wonder, um, you know, why, why is this person doing this? Um, what benefit does this give this person's life? And it may be really difficult for the person who is uh, practicing it to, uh, to articulate it. Um, and and, and similar, similarly, um, I think a lot of experimental people uh, experimental music people kind of look at and and they wonder what you know what is going on here what what is this person what use does this um music that may just sound like noise um or just tones or sound um have to uh in any relevance to somebody's life or, or what what sort of pleasure or um you know what, what sort of pleasure do they derive out of it and, and so that, that's really what i'm what i'm interested in in, in looking at is what where in where, where did people go wrong? Where what what in people's lives um, drove them to um, to seek out something uh, beyond what is um, familiar? What we, what is usually packaged to us in a, in a pop song structure that is um, the culturally we, we recognize as music? Um, you know what, what what drives people to uh, to explore sounds beyond that um, or, or or types of music beyond that? So yeah, that's really the the, the point of this podcast. Um, if you like it, um, you know, I don't really know what, what's going to happen with this. I think I'll probably put it up on iTunes or, or something like that. Um, or, you know, or I may, um, you know, the, the tome is kind of going through a, a re little bit of redesign right now. Uh, I'd like to kind of house it all under one roof, both um, this podcast and Helligator Records, the small little um, nonprofit net label that I run. Um, kind of all be in, in one central place. So it's probably up on a SoundCloud link or on iTunes um, or something like that. It's tentatively called the Tome to the Weather Machine podcast, um, although I'm not totally married to that. Um, anyway, 
please um, feel free to uh, to email me with suggestions, critiques, um, ideas for um, guests, um, anything really. Uh, I'd just like to see what people think of this. Um, you can email me at tome to the weather machine um, at gmail.com. I'm sorry this is so the name is so unwieldy. Um, maybe in some podcast I'll explain you know what what the name means or why I, I chose it. Um, but yeah, so that, that's what it is for now. Uh, tome to the weather machine at gmail.com. Um, yeah, um, I'm just, I'm just going to kind of throw this up here and, and see what you guys think. Um, the music that uh, accompanied this, that kind of played us in, was off of Alex Cobb's newest album um, called Chantelpleur that'll be out on Students of Decay on April 28th. Um, yeah, so let's go to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Alex Cobb, um, owner and proprietor of Students of Decay, also a, uh, a musician uh, in his own right. So we're going we're gonna to talk about um, Alex and his life and especially his relationship with experimental music. Um, so I guess I'll go, just go ahead and um, get, the, get the basics from you. Yeah. Um, we're, so we're, we're, we're here in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Cincinnati. Alex is a native of Cincinnati, recently moved back to Cincinnati. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. What, um, you're, where, where are you from in Cincinnati? Um, I grew up on the east, the far east side of Cincinnati, which, uh, isn't particularly interesting unless you're from Cincinnati and then you have these stigmas about, sure, about, I don't know, it's weird. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess probably other cities are this way, but, um, I don't know anything about the west side of Cincinnati, really. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I drive over there and I don't know how to get around. Mm-hmm. It seems so silly, but it's, uh... Kind of, that's how it is. So I grew up in a um, small, uh, upper middle class, largely conservative, uh, largely Caucasian uh, mm-hmm. suburb, basically. Well, specifically which one? Terrace Park. Terrace, I don't think I know that. It's, uh, it's I don't know, about a 20 minutes from here, half hour from here. My wife and I went to uh, Indian Hills today. It's right near there. We, we just wanted to drive around and see the mansions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's right around there. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. It, it was, it recently, when I came back to Cincinnati and I've gone through the area again, it's, it's kind of a bummer because there was really cool architecture there and it wasn't just sort of like a, a rich white person place mm-hmm. for when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it was, but at least the architecture was good. Yeah. But now it's a lot of new sort of ugly, uh, McMansions. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And so, tell me about your um, tell me about your first exposure to music. What is your first musical memory? I don't even know. Uh, shit. Um, I suppose it would have to be some music my parents were playing, and to that end, probably probably like Mozart or Beethoven, I guess, because my dad listened to a lot of that. And still does, especially like on Sundays. He always mm-hmm. listens to, spends this whole day listening mm-hmm. to classical music. Usually, um, the Beatles certainly, uh, Four Taps and the Temptations, and a lot of early like R and B. Jimi Hendrix, I guess. I don't know. And I'm just thinking of stuff basically the shit that my parents. Okay, so, so so that was in the air. That yeah. was those kind of stuff you're listening to. Yeah. Um, 
and then maybe growing up a little bit, um, what was your, I guess your, your, like the first like artist that you intentionally sought out maybe, or that you were, um, really interested in? Um, I guess it was probably Nirvana, hmm. I would say, because what, what, what years? I don't know. When I was in like third and fourth grade, okay. I got really into like, like Nirvana and like Mud Honey and grunge, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, I never really got into like certain aspects of it. I don't know. Maybe I was only topically into it. Mm-hmm. The certain aspects of it, what, what, what do you... Well, there were bands that I very definitely didn't care about. Like yeah. Soundgarden and stuff okay. I never really that's cared about. All right. Uh, and that's not to say that they're not good. They yeah. probably are great, but yeah. I never really had any interest. I think what I was attracted to with Nirvana was kind of the cult of personality of Kirk Okay, you know? sure. The lyrics and, and uh, I don't know, just, you know. W- what about his personality? That He was sort of this uh, kind of outsider, sort of morose... Uh, well, he's like a beautiful man yeah 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 <laughs> you know yeah like super photogenic and and kind Blonde of hair like, blue eye yeah, yeah. And, and and tragic mm-hmm. even before the suicide he was like a tragic figure sure. you know um yeah so i think that, that 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 was probably my early like oh this is a great this is a great project this is mm-hmm. a, something i want to hear all their records you know yeah. i remember my first uh my first interaction with nirvana um, how old are you? You're 30... 32. 32. Because I'm, I'm 30, so... Um, it was roughly around the same age. Um, we didn't have MTV in my house. MTV was, was forbidden. Especially yeah. something like Nirvana was, like... That was totally, like, taboo. It was off-limits. Uh-huh. I remember my, my parents were um, uh, part of this country club. I actually misremembered that. It was actually a tennis club, not quite a country club. That has kind of a different connotation. So I grew up in sort of a um, rich white suburb in um, in Wichita, and then later uh, later in Colorado outside mm-hmm. of Denver. And uh, but for some reason, like they would let MTV be playing on their um, on their TVs in like the waiting room. <laughs> right. I remember seeing the uh, the video for Heart Shaped Box by Antoine Corbin. Yeah. And just being like simultaneously like repulsed because I knew that went against my. Um, religious upbringing, you know, like the images of like, it's like dead fetuses like hanging from trees. It's like really bizarre. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and, but also just like being really, really drawn to it because I knew that it was like dark and I knew that it was like forbidden. Yeah. Um, and then that Soundgarden, um, the video for Black Hole Sun like blew my mind. Oh, I was it. definitely a fan of that. Yeah. Too. Watching sure. like the friend of, uh, like the basement of a friend's house and <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another forbidden, uh, uh, entering the forbidden zone of uh, '90s grunge. Yeah, yeah, right. So okay, so so Nirvana, third and fourth grade. Wow. Yeah, I guess that's. I mean, I guess that's kind of same same age for me. Yeah. Um, that that I that I knew them. I mean, I didn't. I definitely didn't seek them seek them out. I just knew that that was a thing and that was sort of like in the air. And that's kind of kind of what my uh, friend's older brothers listened to. Yeah. Um, what was your first? Uh, what was I guess your first exposure to? Um, to something maybe outside of that. I guess maybe something that you'd call experimental music. Uh, I mean, like, the immediate answer, which is true for many people, um, is Sonic Youth, for sure. Because uh, I started listening to Sonic Youth around the same time as I got into Nirvana. 
just because they did make Geffen records and, mm-hmm. you know, it was logical to check out, like, Dirty or Goo. Or yeah, you could find like it in the record store. Yeah. And then, like, I'm, I'm definitely not a big fan of Thurston Moore's, like, improvisatory or experimental work. Mm-hmm. Like, when he does duos and stuff, I just don't think he that's good for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turned me on to so many people. Like, the the biggest thing that he's ever done, as far as I'm concerned, for many, for probably a, a whole generation or more than one generation or whatever of uh, music fans and musicians is he drew attention to a lot of important labels and musicians by way of collaborations Mm -hmm. uh, with him or or in the SYR series or uh, just with the bull tongue column with Byron Coley. Um, He's definitely an ambassador of like experimental music and stuff. So that was listening to Sonic Youth and, and also like My Bloody Valentine and Cockatoo Twins were what made me become interested in texture. Okay. And um, texture and experimentation, mm-hmm. I guess. And how, so how, so Sonic Youth makes sense. It was kind of in that framework of, yeah. um, of grunge music and kind of heavier guitar music. Yeah. Um, but how did you come across bands like My Bloody Valentine and Cockatoo Twins? I think probably through, I don't know, the, the sort of uh, influential people you know who are in, into good music. I mean, I remember like my cousin was into Cocktoo Twins and okay. was into 4AD and yep. stuff. So just kind of like that. And then, I mean, Loveless, like, how many people say that Loveless is an important record sure. for them? But it was definitely an important record for me. Yeah. Just like the guitar textures and... Um, just the approach to, to songwriting, really, mm-hmm. uh, and the whole production. It's, you know, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I think that's a pretty common thread with a lot of people growing up as older uh, friends or um, older relatives. Yeah. Um, who've kind of gone before, who've kind of cycled through that um, uh, and and explored some um, stuff that was like you know considered like college rock back in like the 90s you know right you like stayed up and listened to like like late night fm shows yeah and, and stuff like that um i I, n- I never had anybody quite like that I, i'm an oldest uh child i've got one brother mm-hmm. um and not really any close family in proximity to me um but I remember the one of the ways that I found out about um, a lot of bands is through uh, like my friends' older brothers and the T-shirts that they wear. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like my friends' older brothers, who like my parents would always be like, oh, like you know, those are like <laughs> those are kind of bad kids. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd see them wearing um, T-shirts, and it was always that was like pre-internet, you know. And so uh, you know, th- there's not too much. Uh, not no not too much you can do about it right um right. Yeah. except for like you know maybe they'd play a cd or two for you mm-hmm. so i remember sonic youth for me i really got into sonic youth way late in the game mm-hmm. um i remember knowing about them mm-hmm. um and and could probably like point out a, a song or two um i remember i was part of the ski club this is how this is an allusion to my rich white bougie yeah <laughs> <laughs> upbringing but I was, I was part of a ski club and I, I remember this kid um he he had a sonic youth sticker on his snowboard oh um, and, yeah. I, and it was a really it was a really cool he was like the cool kid he was he was like one of the like <laughs> few snowboarders yeah. in like this like ski club 
Um, and, uh, yeah, 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 he had, like, long hair and, like, uh, remember, like, the ball-bearing choker necklaces? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and he had this really cool Sonic Youth sticker. Um, and so I just remember the artwork. Then I remember that Simpsons episode where Sonic Youth does, like, yeah. the, uh, the outro. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're in it. They're eating the watermelon. Right. Um, so, yeah, I remember kind of knowing um, about them through... But it really wasn't until I was in my, uh, I want to say my, my early 20s, right. um, that I uh, that I really started getting into Sonic Youth, and recognizing Sonic Youth for more than just a uh, another loud, grungy, right. guitar rock band. Yeah, um, totally. So yeah, I think it was reading um, uh, Michael Azarod's Our Band Could Be Your Life, um, yeah. that, that kind of clued me into some of the interesting... Uh, the interesting roots of Sonic Youth mm-hmm. with Thurston Moore um, and Glenn Branca and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that stuff. So Sonic Youth, um, so w- w- what year was this? This roughly? was uh, probably like 95, I guess. Okay. Or so 95. So how, how old did you be then? Like, like 14 or uh, 15, I guess. Okay. And so from there, um, so kind of having this knowledge about... Um, Guitar rock bands who did more than just like play really loudly um, and, yeah. and could could use the guitar in really interesting ways. Uh-huh. Um, where did that lead you? Um, what, what what was next down that down that rabbit hole? Well, I think I mean like listening to a lot of Sonic Youth and then listening to you know for example you would hear. I would buy a record by Thurston Moore because it was Thurston Moore. Yeah, yeah. And then he was working with Tom Servel, who's a mm-hmm. percussionist from New York. Psychic Hearts. Yeah. Forever. And so then you would know that, like, Tom Servel did work with, like, these free jazz musicians. So you, you check you, out their... Like, so that this was, like, this seed mm-hmm. where within... I mean, you know, by the time I was 16 or 17, I was doing orders from Forced Exposure... Mm. And buying like Dead Sea records, wow. Silk Breeze records, wow. free jazz, uh-huh. uh, Japanese noise, wow. Japanese psych. Okay. Um, Mill Plateau, like glit, like nineties glitch music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like just o- like oval. And yeah, just stuff. like buying, like amassing, um, uh, basically amassing experimental music. Mm-hmm. You know, just like I remember my parents gave me a subscription to The Wire when oh, I was cool. like fifteen, which was sweet. Wow. <laughs> And just, like, basically, like, taking what they said as gospel, sort of, because you're 15. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, reading reading about records that are uh, said to be important mm-hmm. and not having, not knowing at all about what actually goes into PR and, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, right. what records get good reviews. Exactly. Stuff, you know? uh, being ignorant of that and just buying records, mm-hmm. you know. So that, that doesn't seem like too logical of a stretch from, um, say, Sonic Youth to uh, to Japanese Noise. Yeah. Um, but what uh what what initially um let's say we're, we're talking about like boredoms or something yeah. like that or like high rise okay like blown out Japanese psych rock you sure know? what um what was your immediate reaction to that what was um was was there ever sort of this like recoiling and then like then sort of like engaging it on a cerebral level or was it like a visceral reaction to like uh kind of the noisiness and the and the kind of the I, I don't know. I think I was wanting. Um, I think I was looking for the farthest you could go. Okay. Sort of, you Interesting. Know? Like, what you know? Who who's doing stuff that is 
just so sort of alien. Yeah. You know, and strange. And, and, and but still still retains some type of um I don't know, like like isn't just pure nonsense. Sure. You know? I mean there's a there's a fine line between refined and, and engaging yeah. and complex music and when you're talking about experimental music and, and stuff that's just sort of like artless and bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess that is a fine line and and it I think that tends to be overlooked a lot of the time because there is that um there is that tendency to like kind of go towards the most extreme and i think it's interesting that that you you said you wanted to kind of go to the most extreme because i think a lot of people um especially like for me and at least my like my friends like that most extreme was um was like hardcore punk Mm -hmm. or like uh like the most extreme forms of metal or something like that do you see any parallel in that? Do you, do you think that's that that like? Because for me, it was like the hardest and fastest you can get, and sort of the toughest and the most like uh, sort of like in your face and abrasive. Yeah, I, I think that there's for certain types of personalities, you want to seek out the maybe either the root. Mm-hmm. or the most refined example of something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was into punk rock when I was 12 and 13, like, sure. really into it, you know? Yeah. And it got to the point where I was, like, you know, reading, like, Maximum Rock and Roll mm-hmm. and, like, listening to, like, like really, like, snotty, offensive, uh, purist punk, you know? Sure. And, and that was after going through all these steps of finding other stuff that is good or, or you feel attracted to, but then you, you maybe read more journalism or get another sense of, of what the, the real true, uh, essence of punk rock yeah, is, yeah. you know, and then it drives you further to, to find more, what is really more extreme. Stuff, it, yeah, it, it is. Or, um, yeah, I, I, I guess that's right. I mean, I guess for me that, um, that line goes from, um, you know, uh, from what was pretty accessible, even though it was, uh, you know, pretty heavy or, or straightforward punk or whatever, to like some really, really uh, pretty extreme forms of like metal, like grindcore, and, yeah, and, and stuff like that. Um, and and I, I want to say it is you're you're trying to find maybe the essence of um, sort of sort of the abrasiveness without any sort of like modifying things in there, like totally like courses and like. Uh, any any aspect of like pop, you know, and right. you want you kind of want to strip that away, and find you know what is what is at the core of, of why I like this, and it's because it's like it's nasty and it's loud and yeah. it's abrasive and it's uh, it's sort of off putting to the senses in a way. It's it's disorienting. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it uh, yeah, it definitely has that definitely had that impact on me. Um, I think I think back to my um, my freshman year of college. Um, you know, I, I'd gone through a, uh, uh, like a punk phase and then, um, I was super, super into second wave emo. I still am. I, I'm, 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 I'm a diehard for it. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, I mean, I listened to like Braid's movie music volume one the other day in the car and just like fell in love all over again. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I don't care. No, um, that's cool, man. <laughs> but then I, I'd, I'd gotten into, uh, quote unquote indie rock. Yeah. Um, this is like 2000, this is 2003. Um, Back before that, I mean, 
kind of when it was becoming like a cliched thing. But like I was like uh, a friend of mine, Justin Couch, um, had gotten me really into um, bands like Yola Tango and Pavement. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was like Matador in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it was more like 90s and rock, And then, yeah, like stuff on like 90s sub pop and stuff like that. Um, 4AD and um, stuff like that was, was really um, formative for me. Um, and, and so I'd kind of moved out of like um, listening to like loud music or like abrasive music as uh, a sort of visceral thing. Mm-hmm. Like... Um, I could enjoy it sort of as a, at a distance, like, oh, this is really interesting. I think probably because I'd changed, I'd grown up a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, I was a little bit more in control of my feelings. Then I went to a, a really, really religiously conservative college for my first semester, uh-huh. and I was kind of going nuts, um, and I met this girl who was super into grindcore. <laughs> like, 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 a, like a, a college of like, uh, I don't even know how many, like it, it wasn't big. Yeah. It wasn't a big college, and it was all super, super conservative. It was super, super religious. And I find the one girl, um, she was wearing, like, an Arab-strapped, like, T-shirt, like, the first day, and, I, you know, that was pretty um, accessible and, and not necessarily uh, um, evident of, of the, the kind of the insanity <laughs> that she was or the music that she listened to. Um, but that was, like, an outlet for me, like, even in my my late teens, like I, I needed a uh, I needed a release, and so I went to the yeah. most refined, um, just like <laughs> the most like offensive, off putting, disorienting type of music, and um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, that was like a very that was a grindcore semester for me. Yeah, shit. Well, <laughs> so so you're you're ordering stuff from from Force Exposure. You're listening to Japanese psych and Japanese noise and ordering stuff from Silk Breeze, which, I mean, that, that, that's, that's props to you being a high schooler, like, mail-ordering shit from I remember Silk Breeze. getting uh, weird boxes from, you know, defunct distros with bizarre records, mm-hmm. my parents being like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this shit? Yeah, yeah um, and so when did, um, when did you start, um, I guess, First, uh, producing music, yeah. and then the the idea to start a, a label. Um, I started making music, uh, like, with the idea that I wanted, like, do, of doing, like, compositions uh-huh. or improvisations. Uh-huh. Um, Did you start out on, on guitar? Yeah. Have you always... Yeah. Okay. I've always done guitar and and um, piano and, and synthesizers sometimes, okay. and, and other instruments, too. But yeah. But John Rich and I started a project did together. You, did you guys meet each other in high school? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and we did basically like... What was the name of that project? Uh, Tired Glue. Okay. We did... Uh, <laughs> you know, we were like 14 and 15 or something. And, <laughs> right, and right. we did like... It's a 14, 15-year-old name right there. Right. And, and we did like uh, tabletop guitar, prepared guitar music at 14 and 15 yeah you're doing prepared guitar work yeah okay. and it was really strange because we would make tapes mm-hmm. and um do these techniques and stuff and, and play play guitars with you know alligator clips and mm-hmm. screwdrivers and uh micro cassette recorders and stuff um and then i would get i remember this very distinctly i would get records from Forced exposure, mm-hmm. and I would hear like AMM or Keith Ro- and the Keith Rowe, 
and then like Kevin Drum's first records and be like, wow, this is weird. Like these people are doing the same thing, but they're like much better at it. You know, like they've refined it. Yeah. Um, so it, it was sort of like weird to be like playing prepared guitar and thinking about the guitar as just a big magnet with strings and that you can make textures from. Hmm. Um, willfully rejecting uh, any type of remotely traditional approach to playing guitar and um, realizing that it wasn't unique. Yeah. That there's people who do it and who make fantastic records. Yeah. Uh, using those same techniques. So yeah. that was cool. It was like I was discovering the records at the same time that I was like playing music that was similar to it. You know? Yeah. So which came first? I think I'm, I, I, you know, is, is basically, you know, in, I mean, at the same time more or less, but before I remember very distinctly realizing that there were people making tabletop guitar music after mm -hmm. I was already doing it with John. Okay. So I think it's hard to think back and remember like with any clarity, but I remember feeling going from listening to like the Dead Sea and some of the more like experimental Sonic Youth stuff, some of the stuff Bruce Russell put out on Corpus Herbeticum, uh, to making our own music. Mm -hmm. And then I just I have a very distinct memory of finding Kevin Drum's first record and finding out about Keith Rowe's output and thinking to myself, wow, so okay, there are people who have kind of made this putting your guitar on a table mm -hmm. and working with it with a bunch of different tools and uh, processing elements into like, you know, their main instrument yeah. of choice or their, their technique, their craft. Uh -huh. um, and so right around this time is probably when art damage was, uh, was kind of in its heyday. Is that about right? Am I getting my timeline? Yeah, I... You know, my art damage history is not great. Um, mm -hmm. John and I did a, a radio show together for a while. Okay. Uh, and I think art damage was, like, off the air for a little while. Okay. And, I mean, my, my history with that is not great. Yeah, and, and me not being a Cincinnati native, and, um, you know, I imagine there might be one or two people um, listening to this that aren't from Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, could you maybe give a, a, a brief cursory history of what, is our damage and or what it was just it was a uh, a show on uh, a local cincinnati station waif uh which is a volunteer Wait, radio station I, I love that yeah acronym waif i know <laughs> uh and it, it was kind of just a clearinghouse of experimental music like like i think regional and international too uh-huh uh so it's a very good show yeah you know, in terms of i'm gonna take this bone away from the robot sorry robot was chewing on this bone it was really bothering me go ahead <laughs> no no i mean it's just uh it was a good a good uh sort of primer and and uh, ambassador type show uh -huh. experimental music in, yeah. in the 90s and the 2000s and, and they do some shows uh, around yeah um did you ever perform did you ever play in any of those uh you had a lodge yeah well <laughs> Right. So I I, yeah. I, 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 like when you say lodge, like I, I picture like like a Masonic lodge or something like. It, that. it was. It was. Right. It, it was, was down on uh, Hamilton, 
and in they, North Side. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, yeah, it it was a great place to see music and play music. Uh -huh. I played a handful of shows there. Mm -hmm. um, they did a really good job of curation and. Uh, yeah, it's good. So I mean, it was only related, I think, to Art Damage in, in name. It was like okay. Art Damage Lodge. Okay. It wasn't. It didn't seem like it was expressly tied to their the radio program, Got as it. far as I'm concerned. Okay. So Art Damage was more of like a kind of like a flag, you know, yeah. to fly under yeah. if you're making weird experimental music in Cincinnati. Yeah. It's cool. And any any uh, any particular memorable shows from maybe people here in Cincinnati or people traveling? Uh, I remember really loving the Yellow Swans show. Oh, wow. When it came through. Uh, I don't know. Maybe 2010 or something? Okay. 2009. Cool. That was really good. That was probably the best show I saw there. Okay. They were so good. Yeah. When they were still active. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, so, you, you started, so you started playing prepared guitar um, pretty early on. Um, and it sounds like into your teens and uh, yeah. beyond. When did you start? Uh, okay, so first you graduated high school. Where did you go to college? Uh, Xavier. Xavier. Okay. So you stayed in Cincinnati. Yeah. Did you live? Where, where did you live when you went to college? I lived in in uh, Norwood. Norwood, like okay. right by Xavier. Yeah. Um, was there any? Uh, Xavier's an interesting place. Was there any uh, community of like-minded experimental musicians at Xavier? No, I wouldn't imagine no. so. Not at all. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know why I said that. I, I have no relationship to Xavier. No, right. really know anybody who goes there or anything like that. Um, but Xavier is a uh, is a private Jesuit Catholic school. Right. Yeah, Jesuit school. Synonymous. Yeah, it has a really good humanities program. Okay. Like the English and philosophy are really good there. Um, which they are at most Jesuit schools, which is yeah. yeah. Um, and what did, what did you major? Uh, a philosophy in English. Okay. So I got two bachelors. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and while there, you were um, you were playing. Did you? Uh, when did you start Students of Decay? Two thousand five. Two thousand five. So what, what, were you were you still in college? Um, graduated. I think I was. I stayed on for an extra year, and I took off a year during the time I was there, just because okay. I wasn't really engaged with it. Okay. Um, I stayed on an extra year to do a second BA. So I can't, I think I was in the last year of the program. Okay. Um, when I was, when the label started. Yeah. Okay. And what was your intent behind the label? Uh, mostly it was going to be a private slash vanity press. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had made some compositions that were like basically overtone compositions for processed acoustic guitar that I liked a lot. And so I got good recordings of them and, and put them out on like three inch CDRs. Okay. Uh, so, so your first release is a three three inch CDR. Yeah. And that was two thousand five. Yeah. 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 I, I probably remember getting some CDRs. <laughs> yeah. Around yeah. That, around that time. Oh yeah, it was a thing for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, I made a few three inches and some full length CDRs and uh -huh. stuff like that, and. Uh, I got good feedback from like publications like The Wire and oh, nice. um, sort of early, uh, I mean, there weren't that many like online only music sites then, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I just, I made good press connections and I made uh, good distribution connections. You know, I sold out of the stuff I was putting out and I was surprised. Yeah. 
And then I started to get offers from other labels, like, um, I don't know, Digitalis or okay. uh, uh, Jeff Witcher's label, Callow God. Okay. Um, yeah, Jeff Witcher uh, played Gold Rush. Oh, uh, cool. Last, not last year, last year before. Okay. Yeah. Just like getting offers from labels to do releases for them and then realizing that I didn't have to self-release music, mm -hmm. but then also enjoying the process of releasing music. So I just okay. decided, well, maybe I should run a label. Sure. You know? And so initially it was what, like CDRs. What was, what was your first release? Was it? It was one of my one releases. of your stuff. Yeah. Okay. At 3 yeah. Okay. Um, and so from there, CDRs, what, what, what was your first vinyl release? Uh, the first vinyl release was... I think it was Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma's Shining Skull Breath, if I remember okay. correctly, which was uh, in like 2009, I think. Okay. It took me a while to get to doing vinyl, despite the fact that vinyl has been my favorite format for yeah. forever, just because it's expensive. Yeah, and was it all CDR before that? CDR and CD. Okay. I did a lot of like pro CDs. Got it. What was, um, what's been your most, uh, I guess, widely known or, or most... I, I, I don't know how to necessarily um, approach that, but what, what's probably your most like popular release? Um, or pe well, what people would know. Probably about. the Natural Snow Buildings Dance of the Moon and the Sun. Oh wow! Is a is a really big one. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a record I get every week. A few people email me and ask mm -hmm. me to reissue it. Again. Nice. And it came out back in like two thousand seven. Okay. On CD. Uh huh. Okay. And then uh, Kyle Dunn's record from last year. Yeah, that's a big one too. It was my it was my favorite record of last year. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was a big a big project. Yeah, it turned out really well, I think. Cool. Um, could you maybe list off some of the um, some of the artists who you've um, worked with on Students of Decay? You don't have to give like a full list. Yeah. But, uh, some notable uh, notable names who you've worked with on Students of Decay. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Danny Grody from. Um, San Francisco, uh, Peter Wright from New Zealand, um, Liz Harris, who does Grouper. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a project of hers called Flashlights uh, back in 2006 or something. Okay. Um, a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I have, like, there's over 100 releases. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy. Aquarel, which is Ryan mm -hmm. from, um, he lives in Wisconsin. Uh, Billy Gomberg, Ann Guthrie, uh, Sarah Debachi, uh, Mir Abbey, who plays the Secret Pyramid. Yeah, that, that was my first. Um, that was my first inter introduction to Students of Decay. Okay. Um, really, I mean, I, I think you'd been on my radar yeah. um, in terms of releases, and I think you'd probably uh, done some stuff with Crawford. Uh -huh. um, but it wasn't until I got home from the Peace Corps. Um, that I, I got that uh, that secret pyramid, yeah. um, um, Moments of Night, yeah, which is really really awesome and, and made my best of list. Um, that I really started paying attention to um, Students of Decay releases, yeah. Um, in terms of from from a press standpoint and yeah, yeah. Um, writing up everything that came out because just it was all really really good. Yeah, cool. So it's ten years, ten year anniversary. Yeah. Uh, this what what month? Um. I think it's like <laughs> August, I think. August? Yeah. Are you planning on doing anything special for uh, your 10-year anniversary? I want to do a two-night concert show somewhere in local. Cincinnati. Yeah. But I, it's very nebulous right now. Mm -hmm. who, who would you uh, 
of, of students of decay artists. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Who would you possibly? I mean, I know it's probably too soon to. Well, I, there's a luckily there's a bunch of people who live sort of local, mm -hmm. so I would want to get. Um, I'd probably bother Chris Bush and Eric uh, to uh, do a Cavaladies set, even though they're both really busy. Mm -hmm. um, I would want Matt Sage to come from uh, Chicago, Ryan from Aquarel, the, who lives in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, what what Matt Sage have you put out? Uh, well, I have. I'm putting out his oh, you follow are? up okay. to a singular continent. Yeah, which in, was in a couple really, months. Really good. Matthew Sage is an old uh, or longtime Colorado guy. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. The, the record that I'm doing is is actually his sort of like ode to leaving. Okay, Colorado. Yeah, it's a really good record. Mm -hmm. Nice. So that'll that'll be out in like uh, maybe August. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That yeah that'd be a. Sounds like a pretty cool show. Yeah, and then I, I want I want, we want to try to find some sponsors so I can bring in some people like mm. maybe bring in Sean McCann, um, bring in Kyle Dunn. Uh, nice. Maybe bring in a mirror and have him do a secret mirror yeah. inside. He's in, he's in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. What um what do you have planned um besides you know the, this tentative um show or whatever? What, what are some uh, some releases that you're you're highlighting um, that are upcoming. Well, I'm doing my next solo record next after the Sarah Debachi record mm -hmm. which just came out. Uh, simply because it was it's a pretty personal thing, mm -hmm. uh, and I I don't know I didn't want to trust anyone else with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm doing that, and then I'm doing this great record by Billy Gomberg, uh, and he and I are going to tour for that this summer, mm -hmm. like around the Midwest. Like for both of our records, I guess. Okay. Uh, and then met the Matt Sage record, and then um, a record by uh, the former duo known as Trouble Books, uh, Keith Freund and Linda Lajskova. Mm -hmm. uh, I may not be pronouncing her last name right. Um, they did a a great record that they self released last year. I don't know if you heard that. Mm -hmm. Really good. Okay. Uh, called Mold on Canvas. But I'm going to do their next record, and then. Um, Sean McCann and Maxwell Croy's the second nice. record in that series. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really good. Yeah, like so we're going to do three of those. Uh, the second one will be out like in probably winter. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, I want to I talk about your, your solo, uh, your, your new solo album, which is coming out uh, in April. In April, okay. Yeah. And how do you pronounce the, uh, the name of it? Chantefleur. Chantefleur. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, about the record. Um... I well, I, I I tend to make records um, infrequently. Like I feel like I'm happy if I can make something every fifteen months to two years, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but this record was made when I was dealing with basically the disintegration of a long relationship mm -hmm. and uh, feeling pretty isolated and depressed, and um, it was sort of a therapeutic thing. Mm. Uh, I would I made it mostly like late at night or early in the morning. I wasn't sleeping a lot, mm -hmm. um, so it's. I don't think it's terribly new, if you know my previous work. But mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's a little bit tighter and maybe more optimistic mm -hmm. than the last couple records. Um, Why do you think it's more optimistic? 
I, I don't know. I think I was realizing that I, I was entering into a better place by mm-hmm. getting out of a, a toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it manifested itself in the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about music as therapy. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my day job, I work as a case manager, um, basically um, providing mental health services to, uh, to adolescents with um, mental and behavioral health issues. Um, and, and one of the kids who I work with, um, I, uh, I do a kind of, I'm not calling it therapy because it's not any sort of evidence-based practice or anything like this. It's just something that I've, I found um, kind of helps um, with a kid who has severe ADHD mm-hmm. um, and also, as, as any adolescent does, sort of accessing um, and naming uh, emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, but So what we'll do is we'll, uh, I'll bring my, my iPhone um, and I'll, I'll play different kinds of music, stuff that he's never heard before, but falls in lots of different um, kind of uh, genres and stuff and moods and tempos and stuff like yeah. that. And um, I'll, I'll tell him first what he, what he thinks of it um, and, and how it makes him feel. Um, and, and our goal and our goal is, is we've gotten to tell him how it makes him feel without using like the adjectives like happy yeah. or sad or, or angry or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and what he'll um, end up doing without um, with the restriction of not um, using necessarily commonly used adjectives is he will say, well, this reminds me of a time when you know mm-hmm. this happened or something like that. And I think uh, I think music has um, the uh, kind of the, the therapeutic benefit of um, by whatever sound or tone or tempo or whatever, placing you uh placing you in a uh, in, in a state where that you can recognize mm-hmm. um uh i mean listening to um a, a band like let's say like voice that's fire or something like yeah i can immediately recognize um the the place that i was at when i first heard that or something like that sure um yeah. for for you um do you think that music has uh has some sort of therapeutic um some some sort of therapeutic condition um that, that you found works for you oh yeah mm-hmm. absolutely i mean without question mm-hmm. yeah uh in terms of uh in many many ways mm-hmm. uh in terms of relieving existential depression and anxiety or stress or uh Sort of providing an ongoing and and affirming stimulus for you, you know. Mm. I mean, it's like it's it's sort of a, a comforting thing to know that there will always be good records coming out. Yeah, that you can yeah. discover and enjoy. Yeah, um, regardless of the genre. I mean, yeah, I, I'm such a consumer of music. I listen to. You know, it's weird because I think when you make experimental music, people assume that you're sort of like elitist and like your taste tends towards uh you know i don't know like you don't listen to pop music sure. or whatever right yeah yeah but i mean for me like I'm, i guess i'm just such a rabid listener that you know my phone is two-thirds rap music mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. house music mm-hmm. you know and i i really geek out about techno mm-hmm. and and mixtapes and stuff mm-hmm. just almost to the same degree that I get excited about, you know, a new, you know, pristine 
sound art record or yeah. whatever, you know. Anyway, yeah, I think it's it's very um, life affirming. Mm-hmm. B- both uh, both in maybe the 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 tonal quality of, of the music or um, you know the, the content of the music and yeah. also the fact that it, that it exists that the objects exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and not only do they exist now, but they've existed in the past and they will continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more like soothing than buying a record at 2 a.m. when you're stoned mm-hmm. and, and, you know <laughs> yeah, like, yeah yeah you just know that you're giving a new record yeah you're excited about yeah I, I think that's that that is exciting and I, I think um nothing will replace uh either going to a record store and buying a record or getting it in the mail yeah and, and putting it physically placing it on the turntable um and totally. really listening to it and having that uh initial rush of excitement like actually delivered upon or, or realized I think is yeah uh, is an important part of music and, and I, I like the fact that you're saying um, just the fact that good music exists uh, I, I think is an important thing for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, is their relationship um, not not to not necessarily to music itself but um, just the general body of music that exists and um, an artist and, and things like that yeah um, that I think that it's sort of marrying this or being married to this drive that is universal among humans to, to create. Um, yeah. And when, and, and to create things that you specifically like that, that, that kind of reaches your niche. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, your, your niche, like, uh, likes or, uh, proclivities or something like that. Yeah. And, and the fact that, I mean, I think it's a net negative that, we're in a situation with the music industry where, you know, piracy and digital releases are everything. Because mm-hmm. uh, it makes it very difficult to make any money running a record label or being a musician. Right. But I do find it great. Like, the one, one of the positive things about the current situation is that it makes it so that the labels that do manufacture vinyl, um, the market is such that every release has a greater significance, I think, mm-hmm. where, you know, I mean, if there aren't that many yeah. labels that yeah, do yeah. dedicated physical releases. Yeah. And so the ones that exist, I mean, I feel like they, they take on more significance, you know? Yeah. Like I, I definitely uh, really deliberate a lot about records I feel like need <laughs> to be made, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think you'll always um, find that dedicated group of people who are willing to spend money on um, on art support and, and, and physical media because it, uh, it, it, it it kind of scratches that itch that we were talking about earlier. Of, totally. Uh, of not only um, being, uh, being excited about good music, but the fact that good music exists and people are willing to put it out yeah. in a physical format. So I guess that this is a good uh, time to actually transition into um, the song you picked. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I asked Alex, and I think this will be a, a recurring thing for my guests, uh, to pick a song that um, was personally meaningful to them or uh, was significant in their development as a musician or as a, uh, as a consumer of music. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about the song that you picked? Uh, I picked uh, Beach Red Lullaby by uh, Flying Saucer Attack, who I, by the way, specifically didn't reference earlier. 
to, to make <laughs> oh yeah this, yeah this part more meaningful because if I had talked about plants yeah yeah. yeah. Flying Saucer Attack were a very seminal uh, and important uh, discovery for me, I guess. Um, and like, you know, really like, there could be 50 songs of theirs that mm-hmm. uh, I could have picked, but I don't know. Something about that one, I, I've listened to it so many times that in uh, My Dreaming Hill probably would be the two, like, if I had to pick like Desert Island songs of mm-hmm. theirs. Sure. Um, just something the 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 it just hits all the right aesthetic points for me mm-hmm. i mean in terms of texture in terms of um kind of the intangible feel of it uh what it references but also kind of sidesteps mm-hmm. it's just a great piece of music 
Go, go back to that, what it references and what it sidesteps. Well, Flying Saucer Attack were always very definitely sort of lumped in with shoegaze music, mm-hmm. but uh, David Pierce, I feel like, never really bit it wholesale. Mm-hmm. I mean, because shoegaze, for as wonderful as a lot of it is, yeah. it's also, there's a lot of terrible shoegaze. Sure, with sure. Where, you know, people just get... They think if they have a battery of pedals that it means that they have ideas. Yeah. Right? Um, the, what attracted me always about Flying Saucer Attack, and I feel like it's still influential with me with when I, in my own practice, is uh, weighting ideas more than gear. Because hmm. um, I think his setup, if I, when I listen to his guitar work, I feel like it's, it's not flamboyant. Mm-mm. It's textural, but it's... You get the sense that he's probably using, you know, maybe two reverbs and some time-based effects and mm-hmm. a chorus or something. Yeah. It's not It's not like he has a battery of, sure, of, sure. of pitch shifters and, right. uh, you know. Yeah. And w- w- one thing that I like about um, Flying Saucer Time, especially that track, is it, it kind of elides all the... Um, the uh, the kind of the trappings of shoegaze, you know, the, what what we specifically think of when it comes to um, shoegaze, and it's almost like it's shoegaze by default because it came out in that time. Yeah, <laughs> totally you know? right. Um, and and we could we could uh, we could lump it into um, bands like that because it's easy. Yeah, but um, yeah, what, what I like about them, especially that song, is it's it's not afraid to um, tackle dissonance and it's not afraid to tackle. Um, just a uh, really, really beautiful guitar work that isn't uh, totally oversaturated. Yeah. Um, it, it still, it still um, retains kind of that earthy, sort of unpredictable totally. um, yeah. aspect of guitar work. So yeah, yeah, it's a good track, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think that um, I think that's everything. I, I think cool. that's. Do you have any follow-ups? No, anything no, like good. that? All right. Well, um, I've been sitting here with Alex Cobb. Uh, <laughs> Musician uh, under his name, Alex Cobb, and owner of Students of Decay. Congratulations. Um, it was uh, it was fun. It, I hope you had a good time. Um, hope you learned a lot. Um, I'm going to take this time at the end of the podcast to kind of highlight uh, some upcoming releases um, that we're excited about that I'm hoping to get to um, this, uh, this week in my writing for the tome. There's a lot coming out this week. I, I doubt that I'm going to get it all, but I at least want to clue you into uh, into what's happening. So I'm going to pull up my uh, my spreadsheet here um, and and let you know uh, kind of what's what's going on and what's coming out this uh, this week. Uh, it's a huge week for music. Um, tomorrow, um, most importantly, to kind of highlight um, the interview that we had today, uh, Students of Decay is releasing a new album by Sarah Diavachi called Baron's Court.
also uh, being released um, tomorrow, which I'm super stoked on, is the new Damon and Naomi album um, out on Bada Bing Records. Come. And today, I think, and this might be right, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but the High Orad and Mike Shiflet record is out today on Type. That is an amazing record. You should pick it up. Uh, two heavy hitters um, in this game. And also, um, on tomorrow, the 17th is just a huge release date. Um, we've got two releases on the Flenser, um, which is uh, an amazing, amazing record label. Um, King Woman um, is putting out their album Doubt. Uh, King Woman, uh, of course, includes the one of the vocalists from War, um, which is one of my uh, really one of my favorite bands as of late. I've, uh, can't stop listening to their album Sway. Also, we've got um, a new record by Mastery. Um, the album's called Valis that's coming out on the Flenser. Really, really cool uh, stuff if you're into uh, all sort of aspects of, uh, of, of heavy extreme music um, that is coming out. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's that's all the um, that's all the releases that are coming out, at least that are on my um, on, on my radar. I'm, I'm sure there's billions more that are coming out that I'm um, I'm not aware of, but these are the ones that I'm focusing on this week. I uh, hope to write them up and hope that you can read what I write about them on the tome. Um, so yeah, uh, it was nice. Uh, I don't know, talking to you. Um, I don't know who you are. Um, some imaginary audience um, that may or may not be listening to this. But, yeah, check those out on the Tome. I'll hopefully be writing those. Uh, it's a snow day today, so getting some time to, uh, to put in some good work in terms of writing. All right, thanks for listening. Bye.
God.